We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. The number you have dialed has been Welcome to Interstate Odyssey. I'm your host, Sophie Peterson. If you like learning about obscure, fantastical, and even some potentially haunted places throughout America, you've come to the right place. Each week, I'll be covering different roadside attractions throughout the United States. The good, the bad, and the absolutely strange. Alright, welcome to part two of Hotels of the Shining. This episode is going to be more focused on the hotels that were used to inspire the 1980 film adaptation of The Shining that was written by Stanley Kubrick and Diane Johnson and thusly directed by Stanley Kubrick. If you haven't already listened to part one and are interested in learning more about the places that inspired the original book by Stephen King, back it up to episode three, part one. As for this episode, we'll first be covering the Timberline Hotel in Mount Hood, located in Oregon, and then the Awani Hotel, located in the Yosemite Valley of California. And as an added bonus, if you stick around to the end, I'll give you a little bit more background on the iconic carpet used in the Overlook, as well as a few other inspirations for scenes in the film. Let's dive in. And, 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 and. If you're enjoying the sound of my voice telling you all about these different places, please rate, review, and subscribe to Interstate Odyssey wherever you're listening. Or, like, tell your friends. They'll think you're cool and interesting and cultured, so it's a win-win for both of us. Alright, let's get back to it. The next hotel that we'll take a look at is the Timberline Lodge in Mount Hood, Oregon. I spent what felt like days trying to figure out exactly where the Timberline Lodge was used as the iconic exterior that we recognize as the Overlook and who picked it out. Stanley Kubrick stated in an interview with Michael Simont, I think that's how you pronounce it. The first step was for Roy to go around America photographing hotels which might be suitable for the story. Then we spent weeks going through his photographs and making selections for different rooms. Using the details in the photographs, our draftsmen did proper working drawings. From these, small models of all the sets were built. By the way, I would kill to see some of those models. If anyone knows what happened to them, please let me know. We wanted the hotel to look authentic, rather than like a traditionally spooky movie hotel. The hotel's labyrinth and layout and huge rooms, I believed, would alone provide an eerie enough atmosphere. The realistic approach was also followed in the lighting, and every aspect of the decor it seemed to me was the perfect guide for this approach would be found in Franz Kafka's writing style. His stories are fantastic and allegorical, but his writing is simple and straightforward, almost journalistic. On the other hand, all the films that have been made of his work seem to have ignored this completely, making everything look as weird and dreamlike as possible. I think this quote really provided some great insight on the thought process when making the sets for The Shining and helping to choose the inspiration. The reference to Kafka illustrates perfectly how a story that's set in a mundane, everyday situation is in some ways much more terrifying than a fantasy world that feels eons away from one's everyday life. 
And that's something that I think a lot of viewers can identify with when they watch The Shining, is that the place doesn't look like a haunted house, but instead it's this amazing hotel that they might have stayed in. It has this effect that really ignites the imagination once you're done watching the movie because it gives you a sense of, this could happen to anyone, why not me? The reason I think that I resonated so much with that comment is definitely also from reading The Metamorphosis as a high school student and being so utterly freaked out by the story of the unassuming Gregor's transformation and his desperate yearning to go back to his boring old life. And, of course, the Roy he's referring to in that quote is his production designer, Roy Walker, who had worked with him on Barry Lyndon, which preceded The Shining and won him an Oscar for set design. Kubrick had some more insights, specifically about choosing the Timberline, and why he ended up changing the room number from the original Stephen King book. The exterior of the hotel was filmed at the Timberline Lodge near Mount Hood in Oregon. It had a room 217, but no room 237, so the hotel management asked me to change the room number because they were afraid their guests might not want to stay in room 217 after seeing the film. This might be a disappointing revelation for those that believe the change from room 217 to 237 was a big F.U. to Stephen King, or even more fringe, that the change to 237 was an Easter egg set by Mr. Kubrick for those who believe that he in fact helped to fake the moon landing footage. According to some popular conspiracy theories, 237 signifies the 237,000 miles from the Earth to the moon. I personally think that's a stretch, but for the people who really read into the Apollo 11 sweater that Danny was wearing in the movie as well, this was just another confirming detail for them. I find this interesting because the Stanley Hotel and the Timberline Lodge seemingly took exact opposite routes in terms of their reaction to the release of the film. The Timberline Lodge seemed worried that it would frighten their guests that the hotel was associated too closely with the film and therefore discontinued patronage, while the Stanley decided to capitalize off this interest and create an entire identity around it. Perhaps because the Timberline has a prestigious background that it's able to really stand alone. And, 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 I just wanted to make it super clear. I think I mentioned Elstree Studios, um, but... That's where the filming was done, is mostly in London on a soundstage, but I wanted to clarify if people didn't know this that none of the actual filming of The Shining took place at these hotels. The crew of The Shining actually built life-size replicas of these hotels. However, these are all places at Kubrick and his production designer Roy Walker chose specifically as the inspiration for the exterior, interior, and basically every shot you see in the film. Now back to our original programming. The Timberline Lodge, which provided the inspiration for the exterior of the Overlook Hotel, was actually used in a couple of establishing shots on the front of the movie, and it was built in 1937 as a response to the Great Depression and a function of Roosevelt's New Deal, which sought to empower American citizens who were struggling with joblessness through programs such as the Works Progress Administration. The WPA of Oregon put the construction of the Timberline in motion when it was found that lodging was needed for nature enthusiasts exploring Mount Hood. It was a perfect opportunity to hire a great deal of men looking for work. The task of designing the lodge was given to Gilbert Stanley Underwood, who happened to oversee the other hotel we'll be talking about a little later, the Iwani in California. I guess the requirement for being connected to The Shining, unless you're Stephen King, of course, is to have Stanley somewhere in your name. Like, literally every hotel has a Stanley. What a coincidence. Anyways, Gilbert Stanley Underwood fancied himself a parkitect, 
because he was responsible for designing various lodgings throughout America's national parks. As I said before, the hotel was built by the WPA, and at times there were as many as 470 workers on site, with the aim to get as many men as possible employed. There was even a push for the arts, with the Federal Art Project contributing via Oregon Arts Project Administrator Marjorie Hoffman. She's the one that designed the massive bronze weather vane that sits on top of the lodge. Though the building itself was created in a Cascadian style, with steep roofs that mimic the mountains behind it, Marjorie was a contemporary of architects and designers of the Prairie School, so many of the influences on the interior of the hotel are reminiscent of designers like William Purcell giving it this mid-century modern sort of feel. Clearly, this place was a whole thing because Franklin Roosevelt himself dedicated the hotel on its opening day, and the lodge was open to the public by 1938. It really is a gorgeous exterior and makes total sense that they would have used it as the inspiration for a giant, haunted, secluded lodge because with the silhouette of the mountains behind it and the severe lines and pitches of the rooftops, it's almost like it grew out of the mountain itself. By 1955, the hotel was considered inoperable and wasn't drawing nearly as many visitors as it did upon opening. For a short period of time, it closed down until Richard Constum reopened it as America's interest in winter sports was peaked. And although most people would recognize its exterior from The Shining specifically, it's actually starred in a handful of other movies, including the 1941 musical short Sleigh Bells, as well as Bend of the River from 1952, All the Young Men from 1960, the 1973 version of Lost Horizon, and the 1993 film Hear No Evil. It also appeared on an episode of Hogan's Heroes. So far, I was getting a lot of very historic but not so much haunted until I came upon another section of the interview where Kubrick gives a little more insight on why he was interested in forming the overlook around the exterior of the Timberline Lodge. He says, There is, however, a genuinely frightening thing about this hotel, which nestles high up on the slopes of Mount Hood. Mount Hood, as it happens, is a dormant volcano, but it has quite recently experienced pre-eruption seismic rumbles similar to the ones that a few months earlier preceded the gigantic eruption of Mount St. Helens, less than 60 miles away. If Mount Hood should ever erupt like Mount St. Helens, then the Timberline Hotel may indeed share the fiery fate of the novel's Overlook Hotel. The structure itself is fabulously imposing, and if I were in Oregon, I would drive up there just to look at it and feel the vastness of the building itself. There is this thread that seems to be pervasive in the locations related to The Shining that things tend to blow up around them. While filming The Shining on the sound stages at Elstree Studios in England, a fire broke out on the set because of the intense lighting setups, oddly parallel to the event that occurred at the Stanley when its lighting also went awry. In terms of the supernatural, the stance that I would be more apt to buy into is that the story of The Shining between the film and the book carried this sort of pervasive hauntedness to whatever it touched. I didn't really go into detail about the book, The Shining, but something that people who have only seen the movies miss out on is that Stephen King filled the Overlook Hotel with ghosts, all with their own rich and horrifying backstories. The third and final hotel that I'll be talking about is the Awani Hotel in California. Like I mentioned before, this was built by our architect, Gilbert Stanley Underwood. 
This hotel stood as inspiration for the iconic Colorado Lounge, where Jack spends most of his days on his typewriter, with Wendy and Danny completely unaware that the entire time, all he's writing is, All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. To this day, the interior of the hotel looks near identical to the sets in Elstree Studios. I was excited to learn more about this hotel, not only because it has the most elements that match up with the film itself, but because I knew next to nothing about its history or construction. It has to be one of the most illustrious and fascinating pasts of all the hotels I'm covering, and just to kick things off, I'll start off with some of the notable guests of theirs. Dwight D. Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, the Shah of Iran, Barack Obama, Walt Disney, Steve Jobs, Desi Arnaz, Lucille Ball, Charlie Chaplin, Judy Garland, Leonard Nimoy, Will Rogers, William Shatner, Gertrude Stein, and not to forget, Queen Elizabeth. Like, the list just keeps going. So, the hotel actually started as a campground when two school teachers, David and Jenny Curry, moved to the valley in 1899. They were literally a two weeks journey from the closest town, but nearly 300 people showed up to camp at the Curry campground during its first season of operation. 17 years after the park opened, David Curry died, and the campground was run by Jenny, who campers often referred to as Mother Curry, with her daughter and son-in-law, Donald Tresseter, helping with daily operations. The camp is still there and called Curry Village, but by 1925, the National Park Service, which had only been formed like 10 years prior, were seeing a stagnation of interest, and Yosemite had gotten a slew of bad reviews, most notably the heiress Lady Astor referred to the camp as primitive and refused to stay there. The Park Service granted Donald Tresseter, who was now running the family company, a monopoly on the food and hospitality services at the park. This led Donald Tresseter to merge the Curry Company with the Yosemite Park Company. So, with that in mind, the Curry Company essentially had the run of Yosemite Park and their first order of business was to build a new luxury hotel in the park. They recruited local architect Gilbert Stanley Underwood to build the Awani Hotel in 1927. The hotel was built with Native American influences, because it, of course, was built on land formerly inhabited by Native Americans, specifically the Miwoks, who are indigenous to Northern California. I think American history, as it's written, would like to gloss over this aspect of national parks and their incredibly racist history, so allow me to give just a little bit of context. In the 1850s, so about 50 years before the Currys arrived and set up camp, white colonizers came to the Awani Valley, which they ended up renaming to Yosemite Valley, and it was home to the Awanichi tribe, one of four tribes in the Miwok family. Obviously, this led to a confrontation with ended with white colonizers violently attacking members of the Awani tribe, including lynchings, and even murdering one of the chief's sons in cold blood by shooting him in the back. As a result of this hostile takeover, a majority of the Miwok peoples ended up residing in the San Joaquin Valley Reservation, although a small group remained in the Awani Valley. This just generally was the mood during this time period where many conservationists and naturalists who are now seen as American heroes became a thing. You probably have heard of John Muir in an American history class. He's this guy that's been known for being the father of the national parks and just generally reveling in the beauty and splendor of the untamed western wilderness. Yeah, so this guy was a flaming racist and thought the national parks should be 
quote, people-free zones, which really meant, I want this land for myself and the Native American people who have been caring for this land, and ultimately the reason for it flourishing need to leave peacefully because I just got here and I like it, so now it's mine. He had some really gross beliefs about the people whose land he was trying to take and never made any sort of effort to conceal those beliefs, but history books did, of course, because, I mean, it would be harder to fanboy over a flaming racist instead of a guy who just was really into nature. Anyways. No, actually, I'm still just shook that I had a history class where we were told that Native Americans gifted this land that would become the national parks, which was literally just this narrative that was set up by a philanthropist from the turn of the century. Like, John D. Rockefeller said this. The reality was that few people were allowed to stay in the Iwani Valley, you know, their home, and they were only allowed to have a small village contingent on them working as laborers and attractions for visitors to see. They even built this replica village in the park and wouldn't let the Miwok people use it without permission. This village was raised in the late 60s, and it wasn't until 2018 that the National Park Service finally agreed to rebuild the community a solid 41 years after Jay Johnson and Les James made this request. This meant that finally, the Southern Sierra Miwoks had greater access to their homeland and to cultural practices that were upended almost 170 years ago. And this actually aligns with a popular conspiracy theory that The Shining is really about colonization and destruction of indigenous people's lands. They talk about it a lot in the documentary Room 237. Apparently, Kubrick makes allusions to this through symbolism, like the Calumet can in the kitchen, and just the general influence of Native American design styles and influences throughout the interior of the Overlook, which was a stark departure from the more colonial revival style of the Stanley Hotel. So, the interior of the Iwani Hotel is pretty damn close to the set in The Shining, which gives such an eerie feeling when watching video tours of the hotel. I mean, it's uncanny, especially seeing people in normal 2020 clothes, well, not 2020, I guess, check into their rooms at seemingly the same help desk that Jack and Wendy checked into. As I mentioned before, the interior has a distinct style that mixes Art Deco, Native American, arts and crafts influences, but the original design actually had a way more Persian influence. A couple named Arthur Upham Pope and Dr. Phyllis Ackerman were responsible for decoration of the hotel, and they actually went on to become consultants in Iran after the Awani's completion. It wasn't until decades later, in the 1950s and 60s, that the Awani would receive a style facelift as well as a modernization of the space, including the addition of the scarlet elevator doors made to gush blood in one of the most memorable and horrifying scenes of The Shining. When the hotel was first opened, the budget had been double what initially was expected, with the architecture being far more ambitious than originally planned. And the original owner, Donald Tressiter, was getting desperate for ways to keep the hotel running year-round, instead of only during the busy season in the summer. This is where the idea for an event known as the Bracebridge Dinner was conceived, in the hopes that a big Christmas event would draw off-season guests for the entirety of the holiday season. This was really an aspect of the Awani that grabbed me. If the name Bracebridge Dinner sounds familiar to you, it's probably because of the season 2 Christmas episode on Gilmore Girls titled Bracebridge Dinner, where they hold a version of this dinner in Stars Hollow. The actual dinner started at the Awani Hotel way back in 1927 by the original owners and has become a yearly event ever since. It includes a formal seven-course meal, and an elaborate performance featuring many of the members dressed in Renaissance-era costume, 
Ansel Adams, who is known throughout the United States as a famous photographer, specifically for his black and white renderings of Yosemite, was the first director of the Bracebridge Dinner. This blows my mind because my parents have a print of his in our basement and, I don't know, worlds colliding, I guess. Adams was also a player in the show, which features performances from choruses, musicians, and various members of the dinner performing. The whole thing is like a medieval times or a renaissance fair, but way fancier. And this podcast wouldn't be complete without me bringing up some references to my favorite thing to research. Secret Societies The first thought I had when I learned about the Bracebridge Dinner was not related to The Shining, but instead another Kubrick film, Eyes Wide Shut. This incredibly lavish, secluded dinner party in the mountains with 60,000 applicants, but around 1,500 seats available? That sounds like the perfect setting for a secret society to convene, and of course, since this is all happening in Yosemite National Park in California, the guest list of the Bracebridge Dinner have an overlap with another place in California shrouded in myth and mystery. Bohemian Grove Many of the members of the Bohemian Club, and subsequently Bohemian Grove, were known to frequent the decades-old event. If you haven't heard of Bohemian Grove, here's a little primer. The Bohemian Club was started in 1872 as a meeting place for artists, writers, and the like. Think Victorian-era Soho House. It turned into a place that was frequented by illustrious clientele, including prominent businessmen, entrepreneurs, and even presidents. Every year, members are invited on a two-week retreat to a place called Bohemian Grove, which conspiracy theorists think is specifically for satanic rituals and child sacrifice. It's also thought of as a location where many important matters of international diplomacy and under-the-table dealings are discussed away from the prying eyes of the real world. The club motto is, Weaving spiders come not here, a line taken from Act 2, Scene 2 of Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. The phrase implies that outside concerns and business deals are to be left outside. According to Wikipedia, members often adhere to that statement in large groups, but one-on-one conversations often involve business. Like, the Manhattan Project was discussed here, which eventually led to the creation of the atomic bomb. Oh, another Kubrick movie reference. I swear, researching this stuff is going to turn me into some sort of weird Stanley Kubrick conspiracy theorist, so... If you're not interested in the history of roadside attractions, you can enjoy the subplot of me descending into a paranoid madness about how Stephen King's a time traveler and that Stanley Kubrick really did know something that we didn't about secret societies. Okay, sorry, moving on. And to be honest, I think Bohemian Grove kind of thrives on this persona of exclusivity and leans into it with these insane rituals and over-the-top performances like the cremation of care, which takes place on the first night of the retreat featuring pyrotechnics and music and is done as an exercising of the demon to ensure the success of the ensuing two weeks. My personal favorite detail about Bohemian Grove is the giant owl shrine meant to represent wisdom. It looks like it's carved out of rock, but instead it's filled with audio equipment rigged up to play legendary reporter and former member Walter Cronkite's voice through it. I just love it because that's so wacky, but I also have a big tattoo of an owl on my forearm because Sophie means wisdom in Greek, so I'm here for it. 
Since this is a secret society started in the Victorian era, it was sexist AF, and of course they didn't let any women participate because this is the way of the old white man. And you can learn more about those on my previous episode about the Winchester House. Not white men, secret societies. Um, they did have some honorary female members, as do most groups like this, but ladies' events were held separately, of course. The old Grove actually got in some trouble in the 80s because they refused to hire female employees, which surprises me but also doesn't because I can name like five golf courses off the top of my head that are currently open that don't let women join or work there. The truth is that its power resides in mystery, so we don't really know a whole lot about it. But what we do know is that its members often also frequent the Bracebridge Dinner. The Bohemian Club's all-male choir even used to perform at the dinner. I watched some videos that the Awani posted to YouTube about the dinner, and it looks incredible. Players dressed in traditional livery bustled down the aisles of the Great Hall with boar's heads and peacocks on silver platters. It's like a Mountain Lodge version of Be Our Guest in Beauty and the Beast. What's even more striking is the cult-like deference former diners have when describing the event. Their eyes seem to mist over, recalling the details of the evening with awe and excitement. And honestly, I can't think of anything cooler than spending Christmas in a gorgeous, secluded hotel on a mountain eating dinner at the inspiration for the Overlook's interior. I mean, come on, it sounds like a literal dream come true for me. I couldn't find much else, like videos from attendees of the event, because, of course, there are no cell phones or cameras allowed inside. Really, the only information that I could glean from the internet about this dinner came directly from the Awani's website and YouTube page. I know I said that I was only going to cover three hotels, but I lied. I have to do one more, but I promise I'll make it quick. If you watch The Shining, you probably remember the iconic red bathroom scene where Jack Torrance meets the ghost Delbert Grady after he spills Advocat, which I looked it up, it's this gross-looking egg-based cocktail from the 20s. He spills it all over his jacket. So that red bathroom is actually inspired by someone we all know, the Prairie School architect Frank Lloyd Wright. The bathroom that this was modeled after was actually a very mod-looking bathroom inside of the Arizona Biltmore Hotel. This hotel also has a space called the Gold Room, which might have been the inspiration for the Gold Room in the movie, but that's just a theory of mine. One thing that we do know about the gorgeous Gold Room is that it was frequented by actor Clark Gable for many years, and he also took advantage of what the Arizona Biltmore calls the Mystery Room, which was basically a men's lounge slash speakeasy during the Prohibition era, and you could only get in there through a bookcase door and a password, which I am obsessed with. If there's ever any furniture that I see on Craigslist or Marketplace that has like a hidden or secret element, I always immediately buy it. It's kind of a weird compulsion at this point. The bathrooms were a bit tougher to get information on because there's actually three scenes featuring different bathrooms in The Shining, arguably the most frightening ones too. When I was looking for photos of the original red bathroom in the Arizona Biltmore, I was able to find like one. But this was referenced in the interviews with Kubrick where he said, The final details for the different rooms of the hotel came from a number of different hotels. The red men's room, for example, where Jack meets Grady, the ghost of the former caretaker, was inspired by a Frank Lloyd Wright men's room in an Arizona hotel. 
The models of the different sets were lit, photographed, tinkered with, and revised. The process continued, altering and adding elements to each room until we were all happy with what we had. After combing through Yelp reviews and TripAdvisor reviews with photos, I resigned myself to the fact that this bathroom no longer exists, but it's nonetheless a gorgeous mid-century modern style hotel that seems to reflect the luxury of the overlooks ballrooms and bars. Seriously, if anyone has photos of the original bathroom, I would absolutely die to see them. So, even though we don't always know the reasoning behind the artistic choices directors use, clearly Kubrick and his team made all of the right ones because here I am in 2020, 40 years after the release of The Shining, and I'm still trying to explain what makes this film so fascinating and visually striking because apparently HBO agrees with me if they're in the process of creating another Shining spin-off, specifically about the Overlook. And, if you're anything like me, the ability to visit different places that make you feel like you're in an actual movie or different time period is one of the best parts of traveling and exploring new places. With that in mind, I'd love to hear if anyone has actually traveled to these hotels. I've been to the Stanley Hotel, but not the Timberline, Awani, or Biltmore, so I'm interested in hearing some first-hand experiences. And, good news, I finally got my shit together and made a dedicated email address for the pod, so y'all can send me stories about your favorite roadside attractions at interstateodyssey at gmail.com. I'm always looking for new places and attractions, so it's all welcome. And, as always, if you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure to let the pod gods know and rate, review, and subscribe to Interstate Odyssey wherever you're listening so I get that external validation that I need to motivate me to keep making these. This has been a transmission of Interstate Odyssey, episode three.